Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our special program series. Accessible World is very proud to present our great friend, Ira Fistel, who will discuss the filibuster, um, the history of filibustering in the Senate. So, Ira, again, we welcome you back. We're glad you're home in Los Angeles, and the telephone is yours. Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, it's always a pleasure to do these shows with you. Um, the first thing I'm going to say is, is I'm going to ask a question. How many people out there know what a filibuster is? What kind of a word it is? What does it mean? What is it? What does it do? And I imagine a large percentage of Americans don't know the answers to those questions. I so, know the overall purpose of a filibuster, but I, I've never broken the word up, Ira, so I'm sorry. Let's see if others know more than I do here. <laughs> well, I don't think so. I think you better break the word down for us, please. I'm going to start with the, what, what the filibuster is. Um, it, the word filibuster has two contemporary meetings. Uh, there is a political meeting, and then there is another meeting. The political meeting is a delaying action in the Senate. Uh, usually in the terms of a long, long speeches uh, uh, that hold up a vote or prevent a vote. That's a filibuster in the modern Senate of the United States sense. The other meaning of a filibuster is somewhat more colorful. Uh, it means a personal uh, crusade attack uh, against another country. And the best example that we have of that, I think, was also by an American at uh, roughly the same time that the filibuster appeared in the Senate. His name was William Walker. And I doubt that one out of 100,000 Americans today has ever heard of William Walker and what he did. But William Walker was a big name in 1854. He was a small man physically. Uh, I think he was about five feet three, something like that. But he had big ideas. And one of his big ideas was to go to Nicaragua and take over the country and ally it with the South. And he actually did go to Nicaragua and had some followers and had some uh, firearms and he went intending to take over Nicaragua. Well, unfortunately for William Walker, <laughs> the Nicaraguans didn't feel like giving up their country. And eventually he uh, made a big splash. It was called the Comet of the Isthmus because he was so well known and so well uh, you know, so charismatic and, and uh, well, just powerful. But the Comet of the Isthmus faded out, and he was executed, and that was the end of William Walker. But he was a prototypical political, not, not political, but uh, dynamic filibusterer in the second sense, the sense of a attacker on a, who... Uh, tries to take over a country or something of that nature. Well, what is a, what is the crazy word filibuster come from? I would I would guess that not one of the people now listening to this this program could explain what the word filibuster comes from. It is an English language word, but it is not derived from English directly. It is it began as a Dutch word in about 1500, 15, 1500s. In Dutch, the word looks like, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but, but um, the Dutch word was... I'm going to try here. How do they? How do I do this? I've heard um, that one. <laughs> I 
I've got to look at the page here and see if I can make it out just uh, trying to read it off uh, the page. But it's V-L-I-E-B-U-I-T something else. Vliebuis or something like that. All right. The closest English translation of that would be freebooter. You know what a freebooter is? No. It's another name for a pirate. Okay. Mark Twain uses it in Tom Sawyer. Um, so it, the original word was the Dutch word signifying a pirate, a freebooter. Well, that doesn't sound much like uh, filibuster, does it? Well, when they think, however, of the word vribuiter, uh, it has a translation into Spanish. And the Spanish translation was filibustro, or filibustro, filibustro. And there's where you get filibuster. Why was there a Spanish translation of the Dutch word for freebooter? Well, in the eight, let's see, the 16th century, Netherlands was part of the Spanish Empire. And I don't know how many people know that. But Spain controlled the Netherlands. In fact, Spain uh, more than controlled the Netherlands, they owned the Netherlands. Except that the Dutch people were not very happy with that, as you can imagine. And one of the reasons was that the Spaniards were powerfully committed to Catholicism. And the king of Spain, Philip, uh, Philip was, I think, the second. But anyway, Philip was a devout Catholic, and his ambition was to wipe out the Reformation and to, and make all Christians Catholic again. In order to do that, he raised armies, and he built a navy. And the navy was called, what do you think? The Spanish Armada. Hmm. All right, where does the Spanish Armada and the uh, Spain uh, um, controlling the Netherlands come into the story? Well, it's kind of complicated, but in the Netherlands, the Reformation had taken place, and most Netherlanders were Protestants. This led to war and uh, in Europe, which terminated, actually ended with the Thirty Years' War of 1600-something. And that war was so devastating that it destroyed almost, almost the entire economy of Germany. Uh, Germany, as you may know, is half Catholic and half Protestant. The Protestant North and the Catholic South are quite different, and they have been quite different since they were shooting each other and killing each other and murdering each other back in the 16th century. Spain did not want to lose control of the Netherlands. But the Dutch <clears throat> discovered that they were very good sailors, and they discovered that they could use their ports to trade with other nations and break the blockade that the Spaniards were trying to put on them. This is all under William of Orange. The Orange family has been the royal family ever since William of Orange in the 16th century. And it's still the royal family of the Netherlands. So the Netherlands are uh, today very much religiously and politically in line with where they were when they broke away from the Spanish uh, authority in the 16th century. Spain sent the Armada to pay their troops in, in Holland. Spain had an army in Holland, and the, the, the Netherlands army was supposed to enforce 
Catholicism and defeat the uh, Protestants in the Netherlands. But the army had to be paid. Uh, soldiers don't like to fight if they don't get something for it, and especially when they're pro uh, professional soldiers who are mercenaries. And they expect to get paid, and uh, they deserve to get paid. So the Armada was sent north in order to guard the treasure ships that Spain was sending to the Netherlands to pay off the Spanish army and keep control of the Netherlands. But the weather played a trick on the Spaniards. The Armada ran into a huge storm, violent storm, and the ships of the Armada could not duck in the Netherlands. They had to go towards England. Well, the English were allied with the Dutch because they too were Protestants. And when Queen Elizabeth, whose, uh, whose impact on the history of the modern world is still enormous, Elizabeth heard that the Armada was coming, and she knew what it was like. They were big, big, powerful ships, but they weren't very maneuverable. They were slow. The British built smaller ships, but they were much, much more maneuverable. They also had a great admiral, Sir Francis Drake. And when the Armada met the British... Their ships were damaged and driven into English ports. And what happens when the Armada ships were driven into the English ports? That the treasure ships were driven into the English ports? Elizabeth simply seized the ships. She sent her um, forces to board the ships and take the money. And so <laughs> uh, poor the Spain... They not only lost the, the battle with the Armada, they lost something more important than that. They lost the pay, the pay ships that were to pay the army in the Netherlands. And with that, the Netherlands were in revolt. And <laughs> the story continues. Um, you could see why, though, why the, the Spaniards... Uh, translated, uh, what, how did I say it? Whatever it is, um, into Spanish, into the uh, word um, filibustro. So there's there's the connection. All right. So we now have the two meanings of filibuster. I'm not going to talk much more about the filibuster of William Walker, that kind of filibuster. But the use of the any kind of parliamentary devices um, to delay or prevent action by the legislative body is the kind of filibuster we're talking about here. The United States uh, won its independence from England in 1776. But for the next, the next uh, what was it, 13 years, um, the uh, government of the United States was very weak. There was a very, very little uh, national government. Uh, the states were jealous. They had been separate colonies. Many of them had very different beliefs and very different founders and very different antecedents. And they were jealous of each other. Uh, the large ones thought that they should rule the roost, Virginia, for example, and Maryland, and um, especially Virginia, and New York later, and, of course, Massachusetts. That leaves you with the smaller ones, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Georgia, which at that time was very, very underpopulated. Georgia, Georgia is unlike any of the other colonies. The 13 American colonies were mostly founded for um, freedom of religion or for money, to, make, you know, to uh, 
become muddy societies in which people had more to more to uh, to eat, more to buy, and you know all that. So economics and religion were the two major motivators for founding colonies in the New World from Britain. But Georgia was different. Georgia is the only colony that was founded after 1700. Now that should tell you immediately that there was something different about Georgia. Uh, first colony in America, of course, was in Massachusetts. Uh, and the others were all founded between 1620 and 1700, except Georgia. So what was different about Georgia? Well, Georgia was founded first by an army officer, a general whose name was, was Oglethorpe. And he came to the king of, of um, Great Britain early in the 18th century, and he said, look, here we have the thriving colonies of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. And then there's a gap, and below that, the Spaniards are in Florida. And, of course, you know the Spaniards are all Catholics and very aggressive about it. And Oglethorpe put before the king a plan to found a military colony in Georgia, which would be a defense against the Spaniards if they ever tried to come out of Florida and attack the English colonies in South Carolina, which was one of the richest colonies at that time, or North Carolina or Virginia. The king liked the idea. And so Georgia was founded as a military colony, and there's one big qualification for living in Georgia. You could not be Catholic. No Catholics allowed. So uh, Georgia is uh, somewhat of a different case. All right. We now have the 13 colonies, and there are 13 different independent states. And as they didn't always get along with themselves, with each other as colonies, they didn't as states either. The Articles of Confederation were so weak that the federal government didn't have the power to lay taxes. And a government that doesn't lie, doesn't have money, can't raise money, can't uh, assess taxes, is no government at all. Yeah, this is what I always thought when I was about 15 years old, and I uh, was dealing with the student government at our high school. And I thought, what a joke. They have no, no authority. The student government is a bunch of kids playing government, but they can't spend money. And if you can't spend money, you can't do things. And if you can't do things, you're not a government. Well, that was either profound or uh, basically very simple. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure to this day. But that's the way I felt about the student government, and it was, of course, true of the American government after the surrender of the British at Yorktown, but before the Constitution. The Constitution was called for because the federal government, the Articles of Confederation, simply was too weak to, to govern. And when the first concert, the uh, convention met, the Constitutional Convention met, it was given a, uh, what would you say, a mandate to overlook or look over the uh, government of the Articles of Confederation and with the idea of making changes that would make it a better government. Well, when the Constitutional Convention met, they didn't uh, reach, just look at it, at the uh, Articles of Confederation. They threw the Articles of Confederation out altogether and started over again and made a very, very brilliantly put together central government. It's the central government we have today. It's the same constitution that was ratified in 1791. 
and it has been a remarkable document. I think it's the oldest constitution in existence anywhere in the world. And I'm not positive of that, but I think it is. All right. What did that constitution provide? Well, the first part of the constitution, what's the first thing you see when you look at the constitution? The very first part of it, what is it? Is it Article 1? Preamble. The preamble? Preamble. Absolutely. It's the preamble. Okay. The preamble is the heart and soul of the Constitution. It is very, very, very unfortunate that the Constitution is not taught as they designed it to be uh, adhered to in 1791. The Constitution was drafted according to the uh, legal uh, practices of, Britain's, of Britain in 1791. And drafting a, a document like that had a form. The form was you state the purposes for which you are creating whatever you're creating. And that is the grant of power that tells you what the rest of the document is trying to do. Okay, now listen to this. I'm going to read the profile, the preamble, and I'll talk a little bit about why it, it says what it says. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, that's one, establish justice, two, ensure domestic tranquility, three, provide for the common defense, four, promote the general welfare, five, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. For those purposes, we do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Oh, now, think of how different this is from the Articles of Confederation. Beginning with the first words, we the people of the United States, not the states, not the state governments. This, this was not a, a document created by the state governments as the Articles of Confederation was. This gets its power from the people of the United States acting together as individual people, not as separate states. And then the goals are a more perfect union, justice, domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense. And this one is the one that, uh, that just floors me when people don't get it. Promote the general welfare. What does promote the general welfare mean? It means make life better for everybody. That's what government is for. One of the main purposes of this government is designed to promote the general welfare. And the last one is, of course, to establish the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Anybody surprised at this? Well, all right. To do this, the government was laid out brilliantly, by the way, as a, a self-checking uh, body of three major divisions. They were very concerned about all the democracies in history which had failed, going all the way back to the Greeks. And the gentlemen who, drove, who wrote this constitution were very much aware of all those failings. And they had been through a revolution in England, and the beheading of a king, and then the restoration of the king, and later, because they couldn't get along without a king. Anyway, they had a great experience and a great deal of uh, knowledge about how governments worked and how they should work. And so they laid out a division of powers, separation of powers. There are three major parts of the Constitution. The first one is the legislative branch. The legislative branch is the Congress, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. The second is the executive branch, 
the president, the vice president, and the office of the president with its uh, sub, you know, subdivisions. And the third part is the judiciary, an independent judiciary, not bound to the uh, words of the legislative or the feelings of or ramblings of the of the uh, presidential the executive. And these three divisions were designed to fight each other, to make it difficult for anybody to get control of the whole government at one time, and especially not to have a dictator and not to have, uh, you know, uh, everybody following the leader, and that would turn into tyranny, as it has done so many times. This is very topical, uh, I'm trying to tell you right now. On this, whatever it is, 2nd of April uh, 2017, the division of powers is being challenged every day, and um, I am I'm confident that it will hold up. I'm confident that it will work, but uh, there are forces that are trying to work against it, and I name no names. All right. The legislative branch also was divided against itself. There are two parts of the legislative branch. The first part is the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives was supposed to represent the individual people of the United States, where the power comes from. The House was supposed to be the people's voice. The Senate, on the other hand, was supposed to represent the state governments. didn't represent the people directly. And if you know the uh, American history, you know the history of the Senate, there was no election, no popular election of senators until the 20th century. Senators were chosen by the state legislatures. Okay. We're getting closer. <laughs> so the two houses of Congress did not work the same way. At the beginning, there was no restriction on any kind of action uh, that the two houses could uh, could do. There was no reason why the House was any different from the Senate. The House could pass legislation, and the Senate could pass legislation. But not long after the government was settled, the uh, bad boy of American politics, Aaron Burr, stuck his nose into the affairs of the House and the affairs of the Senate. And he, he being a senator, uh, was more interested in the Senate, came to the conclusion and put it before the body that there was no reason why they had to have a check on anything that, was, that the Senate was uh, about to do. And he pointed out that they had never used it, the idea of checking it. It was in the original, original rules of the Senate that the Senate uh, had a provision that was called calling for the last question. And that would cut off debate and uh, move on to the next topic. Burr spoke against it and got it repealed. And after that, there was no check in the Senate on what people could, uh, action could do and what, what action they could use to stop debate. The House never had a check on debate and doesn't to this day. Well, the Senate found that uh, they needed something to cut off debate to replace the uh, call for the question because the Senate is supposed to be the more deliberative body. It's supposed to be the more knowledgeable body and the safer body. And the Senate is very proud of that, uh, those, you know, those uh, aspects of its existence. So about 1837, they began to think about what they could do to uh, provide a way of stopping unlimited debate at a reasonable time. 
And one of the ways that this happened was in 1837, the first filibuster, where uh, they talk and talk and talk and won't give up the floor and delay and delay the process until everybody gets tired of it all. That's how the filibuster works. And the first one was in 1837. It didn't become a formal operation, however, for another 20 years. In 1857, when, uh, if you notice anything about that date, it's the time when the country was splitting between North and South, and there was debate on everything, and it was uh, getting wild. They decided they had to have something to cut off debate. And so that's when the filibuster became uh, used. It existed long before it was much used, going all the way back to 1791. But it wasn't used. It was a theoretical check on debate for the most part. But with the division of the Congress, um, and the Senate in particular, between the South and the North, the filibuster became a regular tactic. There was, however, no established number of votes necessary to stop debate. And that didn't happen for another 60 years. In 1917, however, when the United States had just entered World War I, the President of the United States was Woodrow Wilson. And Wilson was trying to keep the United States from being uh, you know, overrun with the uh, forces of the, uh, from Europe. And he was trying to protect the American government. And he had a, a fleet of ships built, and he was trying to protect those ships when the Congress, the Senate, uh, tried to defeat his ambition of protecting these ships. And so Wilson went to the Senate and said, as a measure of defense, we have to have a measure to cut off debate at some point. And the Senate saw that there was something to this, and they established the two-thirds majority rule. Debate was free until or unless two-thirds of the senators present voted to close down debate. And that was the beginning of the modern filibuster, which has specific limits. Okay? Later on, the rule was changed and made more strict. It wasn't enough to have two-thirds of the voting senators you had to have two-thirds majority of all the senators, whether they were there, present or not, speaking or not. <clears throat> Why do you think that was done? What happened in this country between 1865 and 1917 that would uh, make you think that they wanted a more strict Senate uh, filibuster rule even than what uh, Woodrow Wilson had put out? Well, two things had one big thing happened. What? Well, that's not the one I'm thinking about. The first big thing was slavery was abolished, and blacks became citizens of the United States with the Fourteenth Amendment. And this did not go down well with uh, a lot of people in the South, as you darn well know. And it took another hundred years before the uh, black people of America had a established right, Civil Rights Act, uh, to, you know, to protect their civil rights. It's in the Constitution, sure, but who's, who is it who is enforcing the Constitution? It's the President and the Congress. And after 1876, when the fervor of the Civil War had worn off, people in the North decided, by and large, 
that they weren't interested that much in these problems of black people in the South. And they made a deal with the Southerners. The Democratic Party was representing mostly the South in those days, and the Republican Party was representing the North, mostly. There was hardly such a thing as a Southern Democrat. There were some Democrats in the North, but uh, they were in league with the Southern Democrats. And the first thing that happened was, in the election of 1876, it was a very close election. It was a fraudulent election. Uh, I won't go into the details right now, but the, the catch was that there was nobody who had a vote in the Electoral College, a majority in the Electoral College. And the, there was a commission formed to decide what to do, and the commission was made up of six or seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one Supreme Court justice. And they were supposed to determine who gets the electoral votes of all the states that were still in, uh, divided, you know, states that didn't have a clear majority. There were, I think, something like nine states, something, something like that. Well, it was a good idea, but the Supreme Court judge decided he, wouldn't, he didn't want any part of that because that would be too much pressure for him, and he quit. So that left them with an equally divided panel, seven Republicans, seven Democrats. That wasn't going to get anything done. So the Congress created an eighth Republican seat on that panel. And this was carefully worked out. The deal was, was arranged. The, all those electoral votes were thrown to the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, and none to the Democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden, who lost the Electoral College by one vote. What was the payoff? Hayes and the Congress removed the federal troops from the South where they'd be enforcing the uh, civil rights laws the 14th Amendment. And that was the beginning of Jim Crow and the horrible next 80, 85 years. American history is so fascinating, so so absorbing. All right, we're still talking about the filibuster, and we haven't even talked much about it yet. But one of the reasons why the filibuster was strengthened was it was easier to get a... Um, a uh, stoppage, uh, they call it closure, if you only had to have the votes of the senators who were there and speaking. But if you had to have two-thirds of all the senators for cloture, it made it harder to receive cloture and stop the debate. And the, the filibuster was the number one reason why for 80 years after the Civil War, there was no protection for the civil rights of the blacks in the South. And we saw what happened. You know, you had a segregated society. What changed it? Well, again, it has something to do with the filibuster. Two-thirds was a big, you know, a big majority. Uh, when you had 96 senators, which what you had after 19, what was it, 1918, when uh, 19... 1916. 1912, I think, when Arizona came Right, Alaska and then Hawaii, if a couple of months later, were admitted to the United States Senate, the United States as states, and, and received each their two senators. Neither Alaska nor Hawaii was hot on uh, filibustering civil rights in the South. What changed was the number two-thirds of 96 is 64. What's two-thirds of 100? The closest you can come is 67. Ah, you have four new votes to add to 96, to add to the 64, rather. 
So you now have 68 votes in favor of cloture and and 67 in favor of the unfettered filibuster. And within three or four years, the Civil Rights Acts were passed. So the filibuster did enormous damage until the uh, numbers changed and you had a two-thirds majority became 67 votes out of 100 rather than 64 out of 96. And it's not noticed that much, uh, the connection between the admission of the two new states and the uh, evolving of the filibuster into something that uh, could actually actually get cloture. It was it was close even then. I think it took uh, 25 votes or something before they finally got cloture. Anyway, after that, they didn't uh, wait too long. In 1975, the number of votes needed to get cloture was dropped from two-thirds of the Senate to three-fifths of the Senate. Three-fifths of the senators now can provide cloture. And that's where we are right now with the nomination of the Supreme Court, uh, of the Supreme Court of uh, Gorsuch. Right now, as the Senate uh, rules are, have, have been re, uh, rewritten, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, as the rules have been rewritten, it would take 60 votes to close debate and uh, prevent a, a vote for Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. Even though he would have a majority with uh, 52 Republicans and only 48 Democrats, uh, the vote can be prevented by the 60-vote filibuster rule. Now that is, however, also in danger. What happened in 19, not 19, 2013, in 2013, when President Obama was in office, the Republicans were filibustering his judicial appointments. And uh, they just weren't allowing votes to any of his nominees, hardly any of them, until the Democrats got fed up with that. And Harry Reid, the Senate president and uh, at that time majority leader, uh, was able to change the rule because all you need to change the rule is a, a, similar, a single vote, a majority of a single vote. He changed the established rule from three-fifths to just a simple majority on nominations for justices other than Supreme Court justices and uh, for presidential appointments, other appointments. Mitch McConnell, uh, our dear friend from Kentucky, warned that this would be uh, not accepted to, acceptable to the Republicans. Well, they couldn't do anything about it, but McConnell's warning was, just you wait until we get the majority in the, in the Senate. Didn't look like it was going to happen for ages. But what happened in the election of 2016, uh, well, it's actually 20, 2014, the Republicans took the Senate and had the power to uh, change the Senate rules. And Mr. McConnell is threatening now to, to do what they call the nuclear option to make the filibuster obsolete for Supreme Court justices, as it is for so many other things. And if that happens, Mr. Gorsuch would get a nomination, his nomination passed, if there are 51 Republican votes. The Democrats are threatening, if you think this is bad, just you wait until we get back in. <laughs> but you see how, how this important the filibuster has been in the history of this country. I don't really know 
how I feel about the filibuster in general, but I do know how I feel about the specifics. And I'm going to devote the rest of this to uh, something that I thought up. And this comes from the October 2016 issue of my journal Topics. Uh, I propose something called Fistel's Floating Filibuster. I proposed that the filibuster rule stay at 60, but it would be tied to the percentage of votes that the winning candidate gets in the presidential election. Popular votes, yeah. If, for example, uh, Hillary Clinton wins the election by 3 million popular votes, she didn't win, but she got 3 million more popular votes. If she had won the Electoral College, my floating filibuster would have re resulted in having it, the uh, filibuster rule change so you could have cloture with 57 votes. One million votes equals one less senator need, needed to uh, reach cloture. So that means that the bigger majority the president would run up, the easier it would be for his party to enact his agenda in Congress. And I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, winning the election by one vote is a lot different than winning the election by 10 million votes. And I think the, the filibuster rule could have been changed to uh, make the popular vote mean something, to really mean something. When you think now of uh, the uh, Electoral College and the way it's set up, the popular vote is only state by state. It has no national significance. What if now we have an election just like what we had in 2016, when Hillary won the popular vote by 3 million, but Donald Trump won the Electoral College? In this situation, when the president does not get a majority of the popular vote, each million votes would be turned into one more vote necessary, one fewer vote, wait, what am I saying, one more vote necessary to reach cloture. So that if the president got one with a minority, uh, and let's say the, the three million votes is held, the number of votes needed for a cloture would be not 60, but 63, because the president is much less popular, and it should be harder for him to get his agenda passed. I thought it was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, I got to say, um, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I think it is really, really interesting, important, and it has much more benefit than simply the filibuster itself. Because it means the election, the terms of the election are changed. Right now, there is no, absolutely no reason for a Democratic candidate to uh, spend time in California. We know the Democrats are going to win California. Everybody knows that. Every Democrat in California, every Republican in California, every person in the country knows the Democrats are going to win California. So all the Democrats need California for is to raise money. Same thing is true of Texas. Everybody knows Texas is going to go Republican. And all the Republicans in Texas sit by and give money, but never see the Republican candidate because he doesn't have to or she doesn't have to, have to campaign in Texas. Everybody knows he's going to win Texas. So... If you make the popular vote count, as reflected in the floating filibuster, there is a very good reason for presidential candidates to campaign, even in the states they know they're going to win. There's also a reason for them to, to um, campaign hard in states they're going to lose, because every vote counts in the uh, arrangement for the um, filibuster. 
in the in the Senate. So Hillary Clinton would have to campaign in Texas, and Donald Trump would have to campaign in California. And that's democracy. That's true democracy. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's really an idea that deserves uh, consideration. But right now, the battle is over whether the filibuster is going to be continued at all. Even if the nuclear option is pulled off uh, by, about the Supreme Court by uh, uh, by uh, McConnell and his Republicans, um, it would still be enforced for legislation. And it's no longer enforced for lower court federal judges, and it's no longer enforced for uh, presidential appointments. But it would still be enforced as it is now, even if it's done away with for Supreme Court justices, it would still be uh, in, in place for legislation. The big advantage of the filibuster is that it defends the, the rights of the minority from having no right whatsoever of just a pure majority rule. I was talking to a, a friend of ours from who uh, grew up in England, and his point was that in the Houses of Parliament, the uh, House of Lords has no power whatsoever except to delay legislation. But in the House of Commons, the party in the majority with its allies, the smaller parties, has absolutely no check on what it can do. It, absolutely no check. There was no way for the minority to in any way stop the majority from passing anything it wants. And that, I think, can easily lead to abuse and uh, is, is leading to abuse now in the uh, Senate of the United States and in the House of Representatives of the United States. So the filibuster is valuable. It's not always the best, you know, the best thing, but we don't need to get rid of it altogether. What we need to do is temper it and make it more important politically by making its impact bigger than just shutting down debate in the Senate. Does all this make sense? Does it all hang together? Because I think it is Ira, it makes sense, but the, Senate, the way the um, one way, Ira, can you hear me? The Continental Congress would yeah. have uh, wanted to do it. Hello. Okay, I wanted to say that uh, Bob here that uh, it would have to be a constitutional amendment, and certainly the the, the Senate and no, would not. That's the beauty part of the it. Senate and the House, right? They, they would zealously protect the filibuster. I, I still think they it does not really believe in the filibuster. Amendment. The only thing it takes is the changing the law, the uh, not the law, but the rules by which the Senate operates. I don't it's, think so. There's either. no mention of the filibuster in the Constitution of the United oh. States. Right. It didn't exist when the Constitution was uh, ratified. And it would not take any kind of a constitutional amendment to bring this big improvement in democracy into the into the uh, American yeah. government. Okay, and that is a terrific point. Yeah. Right now, it's almost impossible to get anything passed uh, with a sixty-vote majority. Right. Because the, the Congress is too divided. But with the floating filibuster, it would make it a lot easier for the Congress to respond to the vote of the people, uh, which presumably they are voting for a whole government. And when they vote for the president, they're really voting for the party, they're not really voting for just the president. People think that. Forget that. Yeah. When you voted for Donald Trump, you weren't voting just for Donald Trump. You were voting for all the other Republicans in, in the uh, government. And that was one of the reasons why it was such a, a, a terrible thing that people who were uh, against Trump's policies but liked him uh, voted for him rather than for Hillary. 
They didn't like Hillary. They said, well, I don't care if you like somebody. You're not just electing a president. You're electing a government. Right. And if you don't vote for the policies you want, you are giving the uh, and if you don't vote at all, which a lot of people did, uh, you're giving a vote to the other side, the side whose policies you don't like. It's very, very simple when you think long enough about it. And when you clear away the, the rubbish, so to speak, that's been built up over 200 and something years. I really see if anybody else wishes to make a comment or ask a question. Has anybody else? I heard a couple of other people come in. I don't know who they are. Anybody at this time want to ask a question? Uh, well, this is Ken, Ira. And Ken? I, I think it was, uh, first of all, thank you. What a wonderful history lesson. Um, and and I love I love history. Anyway, so that just made it even better. Um, I, I look at the filibuster. Obviously, it's going to be used in whatever way the party in charge is going to want it to look like. I mean, you know, it changed when Harry Reid was there because it benefited him. Um, sure. all, at the same time, Ted Cruz was certainly able to put on a good filibuster for what, almost sixty hours? Uh, yeah, but of course, it wasn't. It wasn't a successful filibuster. Uh, a lot of filibusters are not successful, but they're great uh, ways to get your name in the paper. Yeah. Well, the only successful one was Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have never seen the movie, but I know oh, about Jimmy it. Stewart. Oh. Jimmy okay. Stewart, yeah, yeah. Filibusters, yeah. Yeah, but, but that was uh, a movie. The filibuster is. Uh, oh, was there a question here, Ken? Or you just, you're just? No, I was just making more of a comment that okay. that that the 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 parties in charge. I I guess my concern is what you said though about people voting for the party more than they do the candidate. Well, uh, well it's what they as, should do. It's not what oh, they, they should. Do. I'm sorry. Yeah, they should. They don't. They they. It's it's a personality conflict or a personality issue really yeah and that's what uh, that's what was so strange about the trump election because personally people don't like him no no but they don't enough enough people in in one uh, you know one small area voted for him and uh, he was able to win the electoral college by that Even well one though, of the one of, not problem, one of the problems in the nation overall, one uh, of his the popularity project. rating is something like thirty-three percent. One of the problems, like Hillary, even more. That's the problem. They they, they just didn't like. Well, that. one of the other problems I saw was that you know ever since the the TV industry or the radio and TV industry was deregulated, it has I think it has created multiple issues of honesty uh, when it comes to elections. You know what? I agree with you absolutely. Yeah. think that two big things happened since my heyday in radio, <laughs> and I don't think either one of them was good for the country. The first one was the abolition of the Fairness Doctrine. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The Fairness Doctrine was that if you it. presented a, a opinion on an issue of importance, right, you had to present the opposing opinion. You had to find someone who'd speak against it. Mm-hmm. As the, on a ballot, you know, when you see the ballot, you see the argument for and argument against. Right. You had to do that in radio or television. Yeah, equal time. I remember those days. It was yeah. done away with, I think it was about 1990. Now, whether it was during the last years of the Bush administration or the earlier no, administration. I it was actually under Clinton. It was under Reagan who did it, didn't he? Well, Reagan did part of it, but Clinton oh. finished it off in 93. Yeah, I think I was, that's right. I was Reagan and Carter were the, were the two I was should have been thinking of instead of the two I mentioned. But I don't know. I think it was during the early years of the Carter administration, wasn't it? Well, I thought, well, I thought, I thought it was Clinton. Oh, Clinton, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, nine, yeah, maybe he wanted it, but I'm, he yeah. started it, I think you're right. it was, that was... It might have got as far as Clinton, yeah. Um, because uh, I think that was a, a misunderstanding of how radio works. Right, right. Uh, in talk radio, 
the host does not does not uh, lead the discussion. It sounds like he does, but he doesn't. No. The host does is to have his listeners validate his listeners' opinions. Mm-hmm. They only listen to him because he's saying what they're saying, what they're thinking. Right. It's like in television. Uh, if it doesn't appear on television, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. If you don't see, for example, if what happens if you don't see the World Series on TV? It's, well, <laughs> nobody's interested. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't see it on TV, it's not real. Right. Yeah. And if you don't hear it on radio, oh boy, you're not convinced. You can't be convinced that you're right. <laughs> and the function of right-wing talk radio has been, and its, it's effect has been, to validate the outside of the norm opinions of a lot of people who would never have been saying the things they were saying, even though they were thinking of it, because it wasn't mainstream enough. Yeah. And it isn't mainstream now, but now they have somebody who says it's okay to be a, a alt-writer, mm-hmm. to be uh, racially prejudiced or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. I'm one, you know, and that I think is very damaging. Second thing, I read you said the fairness doctrine. What was second? Fake news? Is that does that? A- Let him finish, Bob. Oh, I'm going to. What was the second issue that you said you you've noticed? You said the fairness doctrine going away. Well, the, the second thing is I haven't mentioned yet. I know. I, that's why I just said, what, what will it be if? Well, what the second thing that I think was that was so damaging, okay, the lifting of the ban on ownership, restri- you know, re- ownership restrictions. Yes. Yeah. Oh. At the time I was working in the industry, uh, and the heyday of that time, you could own seven radio stations on AM, seven FM radio stations, and one television station in the same wow the same time. Mm-hmm. You couldn't own any more than 15 stations, one TV and 14 radio. Now, well, since that restriction was taken off, you have companies owning 800 stations, 1,200 stations, 1,400 stations. They all are programmed alike. They all sound alike. Mm-hmm. And they all are under the same control. Regulated news. That know. is absolutely news. devastating. Yeah, very good point. May Let's I ask see, we're wrapping up here. Let's see if, uh, Ruth Ann, did you have any questions? Yes, I did. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Gorsuch and this whole business of uh, the, the... Good, the, go ahead. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, uh, I hear you. Okay, the uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Gorsuch and this whole business of the uh, of the... Uh, uh, the whole business of the uh, nuclear situation of bringing that to to a conclusion. Uh, One of the things I'm concerned about is that there seems to be such a lack of um, part of uh, bipartisanship, people working together to try to do what really is the best thing for this country. And well, you're right, but you know right. where that comes from. It's not only the Congress that's polarized and, the, and politics are polarized, it's oh, because yeah. the public is polarized. Yes. And it's exaggerated by, uh, you know, um, gerrymandering districts. And uh, you have about 30 people in the House who don't care what they say because they aren't going to be uh, voted out. Their districts are so solid that they can. They say that we're we're going to represent our our constituents, and we don't give a darn what it, what anybody else says. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I uh, that I think uh, the Republican Party has backed itself into a corner on, because they now are seeing. That these these guys in Congress, the so-called Freedom Caucus, Freedom Caucus, don't care what the rest of the party says. They aren't interested in what the Republican Party says. They're only interested in their own their own uh, constituents and their own beliefs. 
And how does the uh, the big repeal of health care uh, fail? It fails because 30 maverick Republicans wouldn't go along with it. It wasn't enough for them. The Freedom Caucus wants to eliminate it. That's, that's the kind yeah, of thing I mean, that results when you get so much gerrymandering yeah. that there's no hope that anybody is going to compete with the incumbent congressman. Yeah. But but I, I think this is Ken. Out of all of this, I, I see another thing here, and I mean, you're, if you want to comment or not, I appreciate it. But what what I see here is there is supposed to be checks and balances. We have three areas in the Constitution in the in the uh, first article, uh, second and third: the executive, the judiciary, and and um, the in Congress. Okay, so the legislative. Now. Here's Trump telling Congress they have to vote on this, and the Congress either listens to him or they don't. Where's the balance of uh, the checks and balances going? Right now. Well, don't have it. you have a one-party domination of Washington right now. Yeah. And that's, one of the, that's part of that. But uh, the president doesn't tell the Congress they have to vote on it. He says, I want this. Right. He does do I, that. But he can't order the Congress to vote the way they did. They, they, he they says, didn't I, vote I, I the way he wanted you to. Don't. Like, you know, but he tries. He says he, he said, I will come after you in the primaries, Republicans. I don't care. But yeah, he bullies them. Yeah, but those those Republicans don't care what he says don't because care. they're right. so the solidly in yeah. yeah. districts that will never go any, anywhere else. That's right. And their constituents it, it, don't want to lose health care. Too much care. of a good thing for the GOP. Yeah, yeah and their, their constituents don't want to lose health care. <laughs> well, their constituents don't care. Yeah, they don't care. They're very... And most of their constituents are, uh, you know, not... Very conservative. Only, very... Uh, they're ideologically against any kind of government... Uh, no, I, I'm sorry. I mean the ones voting against it. They, they don't want to lose votes in the next election. Oh, no. But they won't lose votes by, they won't, no. by no. voting the way they're voting. Because no. that's what their districts are like. I, I, I hate to stop, but I have to. I want to thank you, as usual, for an outstanding job. Oh, thank you very much, Bob. It's, it's so much fun to do these things. Oh, this is great. We just love it. I was tired at the beginning I, that I, I'm just charged right now. <laughs> you gave us a lot to think about, and we appreciate it. You always give us the history more than just, okay, let's jump to the filibuster. You gave us a great history. Uh, well, thank you. I, I want to thank Rachel, my I knew about Walker. Partner, I knew Walker. I didn't know. Who helped me a lot by looking up. I didn't up know about him. Okay, Ira, thank you so much. We'll be in touch, and let's see what we'll come you, up with next time. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Is there anything?